Jervon and Pan, you're both going to Strange Loop this week, right? We're both talking to Strange Loop this week. I've always wanted to go to that. I'm super jealous. You can go to that. It's within your power. Mm, expensive power. Next year, I am going to try to make it. I'm also bummed I'm not going to make it to ElixirConf, but I don't feel like I'm missing anything except for like... I feel like if Elixir is like really cool in 10 years, I can say like, I went to you the went second. You went to the first. <laughs> what the, no, it's actually the second. It wouldn't even be the oh. first. <laughs> I wish I went last year, actually. You should uh, do one in Philadelphia, and then you can be like, I went to the first Elixir Philadelphia conference. <laughs> I thought about that. That'd be kind of cool. I am taking two workshops at Strange Loop, which I'm pretty excited for. On what? Uh, one is on Idris. And the other one is building a distributed system with Mesos and Clojure. I watched Brian McKenna give an Idris workshop at um, LambdaConf earlier this year. And I got I got, got there a couple minutes late, and it all seemed like way over my head, and at the same time, uh, super basic. Uh, not basic in the sense that like it was easy, but the things, the problems that we were solving in the workshop were like, prove that uh, if you increment a number you get the next number or uh, that wasn't, I don't know if that was actually one example. One of the examples was though that um, prove that the identity function is the only function that you get the same result if you call once or twice. So it was a really cool, the way he was showing how to like prove these things and solve these problems in, in Idris. Uh, but at the same time, I was having a hard time mapping that to something I could actually use to make an application in. I kind of want to learn more about like proofs and there's a book called the little prover which seems kind of cool is that part of the little series like the little schemer and the little it might be it, it sounds like the little schemer it's by mit press mm. oh yeah the little schemer is listed in the description so get a discount if you buy them both what are you guys going to be talking about at strange loop i'm talking about streams I am giving the same ClojureScript talk I gave at QCon, but with a little bit more information. I'm actually kind of nervous, just because the Strange Loop crowd is probably super uh, knowledgeable. So I have to also be super knowledgeable. I mean, I think by like writing the talk, you're already more knowledgeable than 90% of the people in the room. And, and most people are not going to be uh, David Nolan, you know? <laughs> That is true. That is true. Most people are not David Nolan. It's a fact. So, Justin, do you want to talk about your uh, big deploy today? <laughs> uh, not really. I just had to do like a. We're getting ready for features for HashiConf, and uh, I guess I can. It's not that big of a thing. Like we're changing how we like have application structure in Atlas. Uh, basically, I had to like do a bunch of active record moving stuff around and breaking relations and making new relationships, making new models, and. There was a whole lot of planning for like a while to make sure nothing broke and nothing broke. So I was pretty, pretty stoked that we deployed this like giant change and uh, nothing broke. Did you save the old data or what was your migration strategy? And we have backups, but uh, so we, we deployed to a uh, canary node, I guess, like a staging node, which is connected to all the production stuff. It's just not in the load balancer. And then we uh, run database migrations on that. It's really helpful if you only add columns and don't change or remove columns or tables during a migration because if you remove things, um, then you have the issue of like you need to first remove all the code that uses it before you do the removal. And then also you need to worry about um, active record tends to cache column names. So if you're not doing like an immutable deployment, then you might like have a Ruby process running that expects a certain active record column to be there and it's not there anymore. 
Uh, but anyway, yeah, so you just run a migration-only deployment, and then we have some other... Uh, every time we like, change data on production, we always write a rate task and write tests for it, and then we run it locally against production data to make sure it works okay. Uh, so we like we practice over and over again to make sure it was going to go smoothly, and then it, and then it did, so that was kind of cool. Practice makes perfect. Um, usually I'm not as close to the ops cycle of like deployment, and usually when I'm deploying things, they're not like used actively by people. So it's kind of cool to be working on something that people are actively using while you're changing it. Uh, it's kind of refreshing and also a little scary. But we have really great um, people we work with that, that are really good about that stuff. That's how I learned about the like only add things during a deployment, don't change things or remove things in the database. So wait, when do you remove it? Uh, if you have to remove it, you need to like, what, what an ideal process would be is remove all the code that uses it deploy that code, and then write a migration that then removes that data and that, those tables, those schemas. Um, you can do it all at once, but no matter what, you'll have an issue where you either don't have the data anymore, and then you have code that relies on it, or, yeah, that's pretty much the only scenario, I guess. I don't know, changing anything in production is scary. Yeah. <laughs> like, data-wise. Code, code's pretty bit, pretty easy. Sometimes if you want to remove something or change something in Active Record, you can just deploy and cross your fingers, and then if it breaks, just deploy again, and usually it's usually fine. <laughs> Pam, is your stream talk, like, on, uh, is it pure JavaScript, or do you concentrate, like, on a library for streams? It's, well, ish. So there is some pure JavaScript in it in that it talks about emerging standards in JavaScript that are more stream interface-like. Like a generator? Yeah. Spoiler. Um... <laughs> And then I do cover some libraries as well. And of course, there's the streams data type in Node. So Node itself comes with streams data structure right in there, named streams conveniently. I really like how in Elixir, there's, um, there's a stream module and there's also a list module. So a lot of the things you do is like list.map and then you pass it a collection and then a function. Um, the stream interface works exactly the same way, um, but everything's lazy. That is exactly how streams, that's an ideal way to implement them. <laughs> it's a very clear way to implement them. That's an Elixir or an Yeah, early? Elixir, yeah. Elixir. So I haven't, I haven't done much with them, but I just know that you can essentially just change everything from list to stream, the module name, and everything should just still work. Yeah, it's a lot easier to learn them when the language has the implementation right there. <laughs> that's interesting. So I went to the Open Hardware Summit over the weekend. Oh, cool. I might ask you, because you've done some automation, uh, Justin, with Arduino and stuff, right? Raspberry Pi, but yeah. So yeah, because I've gotten, now I have like a bunch of boards so that I'll feel even more guilty about not doing anything with them. Oh, cool. So I have a bunch of things to play with. What kind of boards do you have? Are they all Arduino? Uh, no, 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 no. Um, I mean, I have my Arduino boards. I also have a Blinky thing. I have a thing that's literally called a thing from SparkFun. Is the blinky that's... thing the thing that's like blink one where you like put it in a USB thing and you can set the color? No, it's a blinky yeah. pendant. Uh, the they searching for a new, I think a new American public art talked about it and it's like a pendant and you sh you move it back and forth and when you move it back and forth really fast, it shows you a pattern. Oh, cool. So, and you can program new patterns. So I, yeah. So that, that's actually a pretty... Maybe I'll, I'm wondering like, if I can set, give myself yet another challenge to not fulfill of like, if I try and do a hardware project every week, this is a really easy one <laughs> to just program the blinky pendant to do a different thing. 
maybe I could do the Turing and Complete logo. Ooh, that'd be cool. <laughs> if I succeed, <laughs> you, you all will know. Like, uh... <laughs> There's a lot of colors involved. Well, I guess only five. What are those? Right? Um... No, six. We have six colors in our logo. Yeah, including black, I guess. Yeah. If uh, I were a printer, I would include that. You could like make yellow the background. Although, Fair. I don't know. Uh, how do you how do you light black? Mm. Actually, yeah, true. For a light, the black might be an absence of light, so it might be only five colors. So does it have like an accelerometer and it like knows where you're shaking it to, and then it displays that color? Uh, I don't know, man. I'm just gonna <laughs> drop the link in the show notes, <laughs> and people can go get one <laughs> if they want. Um. But it was kind of fun because we, the person uh, from the public art uh, talked about it and got everyone in the audience to get out their blinky things. That's really cool. All I've played with hardware-wise is um, Raspberry Pi, which runs it runs a full version of Linux on it. Yeah, so well, you know, over yeah. lunch I talked to uh, someone who said I was talking about the, you know, how to get into the thing. Um, and she suggested that because she's like, well actually starting with a system you're more familiar with where you have all of Ubuntu, like where you can run Ubuntu. Yeah, be. yeah, exactly. So there's Raspberry Pi and then I think Arduino Uno is also a full Linux thing. But most of the Arduino like platform and chips are, I don't know how they work. I think you're like writing some kind of like Arduino-like language or Arduino C-like language. Yeah, it's it has, there's its own IDE and there are other languages that interface with it, but then it's just, uh, I think it's a foreign function interface. Hmm. So At least I, that's what it seems like when I messed with it in Python years ago. So I'm starting a robotics project right now where I want to write Elixir. Ooh, what's your robotics project? I'm going to make a uh, autonomous lawnmower. Oh, right. Are you, you're actually going to do that? I'm actually going to do it. I, uh, I, I mean, a... you got to do it before you, you, you're going to put out those conference proposals. <laughs> exactly. Um, so my idea is I'm going to make like a really tiny, not tiny, but like two foot across frame out of wood and get some uh, wheels. I learned a lot in the past week about uh, wheels and motors and gearing and, and power systems and voltages, uh, which is a lot more complex than I thought. Um, you can buy this all like pre-made. So I'm gonna try and get like some pre-made uh, motors and wheels and gearing all like in one assembly that I can just mount to the wood. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that and then hook Raspberry Pi up to it and see if I can get Elixir controlling the motors and just getting it to like steer around. So I'm hoping to get that done in the next month. And that'll give me like a platform to actually put sensors on and actually figure out if I can make this thing like navigate a space and not crash into things. Um, but yeah, I'm imagining like making a full-size one will probably take me at least six months. <laughs> yeah, so you're going to make a tiny prototype? Are you going to make a tiny lawn in a tiny house? That would be really cool. No, it's going to be big enough that I can actually like go in the lawn by itself. I just won't be able to like fit blades inside of it. I might also measure like a... Uh, a checked bag to make sure it will fit in a checked bag if I want to take it to a conference. Because if I do give a talk about That's this, a really it'd be, good idea. It'd be cool so to you have don't the, have to ship it. Yeah, it'd be cool to have like the robot like wandering the audience while uh, while we talk about it. So, yeah, mowing good luck, the lawn, good luck. mowing the audience. <laughs> Len was going to say, "Good luck getting that through security." Yeah, <laughs> I would not. I would just ship it, or at least check it. it doesn't look like a clock, so I think I'll be safe. Um, <laughs> bad joke. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to try and make a. What do they call this in the, uh, the architecture I was reading? There was this Wikipedia article called Sub- Subsumption Architecture, which essentially advocates that uh, instead of like writing imperative code in a bunch of like, I think of it as like getting the current state of the world and making a decision on it, you instead make the robot uh, 
react to inputs. So it has like a layer that's like, I want to go forward. And then you have another layer that's like, if I get close to a wall with these sensors, you know, I want to get away from that. So it just like overrides briefly the other layer and says, hey, we need to turn a little bit. Uh, and you keep like adding these layers on until the robot, um, it sounds almost like slightly non-deterministic, like you don't know what it's going to do, but it should do the right thing, if that makes sense. You know, Justin, hmm. a cheaper way <laughs> would be would be to buy a Roomba and program the Roomba. And then you could get a vacuum and a carpet lawnmower. Carpet lawnmower? You could performance test your, your mower against a Roomba. And see which one. See if you can beat millions of dollars of research. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually listening to the uh, CTO of Roomba on... Um, Talking Machines podcast, I think. No, that was a mistake. No, it was on a different podcast that I found. I don't know the link to, but it was like from 2007. Um, but by the way, Talking Machines is a great podcast. You should listen to it. I second that. Uh, I've been really enjoying that. Uh, the, the CTO of Roomba was on a podcast and talking about like, he's also like a head of some robotics lab at some university um, or AI lab. Uh, but I was looking at pictures of somebody made art with Roombas that essentially they put like colored LEDs on top and had them wander a room and they made pictures from it. And a lot of the pictures, uh, they have this swirl pattern where I guess the Roomba will just like randomly stop in the middle of the floor and then start doing this like outward swirl. And I guess that's to increase the, uh, the coverage. Like it would just like randomly walks around or roams around. I guess eventually it will get everywhere, but it probably takes, takes a while to like, it probably misses slivers quite often. Whereas this seems like a pretty foolproof way to like cover a large area guaranteed. Uh, I don't know, so that was pretty cool. And there are other, uh, there are lawnmowers you can buy that avoid uh, the edge of your lawn by burying a cable and it senses the cable. Uh, but a lot of the reviewers say it gets stuck. And, I, and the problem I see with that is that it doesn't know which direction the cable is. Maybe if it had like sensors, like at least four sensors, it knows what direction the cable is if it runs into it based on how strong that uh, magnetic field is. I think it's called the Hall effect. Um, but it seems it seems better to be able to like actually see like where the edge is and make decisions based on that. And then also, I would like to put GPS on it so it can, if it does get outside of a boundary, it can like return back. I don't know. I'm just gonna make a base and put sensors on it and see what I can do. <laughs> before I actually decide what sensors to use. I thought another great idea would be just have one camera on it, so like a single sensor, and base everything on that. Uh, but that sounds way harder. You could see. You could hang a flag or something on either a banner on either side of the lawn, and the camera will go past that. But I also want to make my yard like really ugly. <laughs> yeah, the Roomba does not have a pattern. Oh, maybe it does, but if you were to translate the Roomba onto your lawn... Your lawn would look crazy. <laughs> it would also need like a Roomba uses the light fences, I think. But anyway, Pam, I got. I also have. Um, I've only played with the Raspberry Pi, but I also got this Arduino board called Flutter from Kickstarter. I I kickstarted it like two years ago and just got the boards recently. Um, but it claims that it has a one kilometer range, like a wireless uh, antenna on it. That's really far. It is far. So I have a pair of them, but I don't know what to do with them. Maybe maybe they'll end up in the lawnmower, but I don't know. What if you put them 900 meters apart and just have them talk to each other? <laughs> just because I can? Yeah. Hmm. It is ideas like that why I have not done anything <laughs> with all this hardware that I have. I mean, in general, I think that 
I don't know, deep thoughts. This is something I, I struggle with in terms of ideas for things is that it's a little bit of a catch-22 that I feel like by being immersed in technology, we have a hard time thinking of innovative ideas to serve with technology because it's the field that we're deep in. Does that make sense? Like We can't see the forest through the trees or something? Uh, a little bit of that, but more I mean like if you're a bus driver, you know all the problems that bus drivers have and you don't know anything about technology. And in technology, oh. we understand deeply the problems that we have in technology and then we have all these you know, great, like Splunk or like, we have a lot of great tooling because we deeply understand our own field. But the the bar is very low elsewhere, partially because we're all so busy and thinking about our own problems that we can't see. That's why I mean, you're like a little bit there with the forest for the trees, like that I, you know, getting experience in other things to try and think like, what, the only problem I can kind of think of that I could be like, okay, I have a board that I can automate that, I guess, is um, my plants need to come inside for the winter probably. And so maybe I should schedule a grow light to turn on for three hours a day or something. Or and then I just like, leave it alone. Or you could like take an Arduino and put like a moisture sensor in it. Yeah, it but would, like, I kind of like, you. I like watering my plants. But it, it could it could tell you to water them. Sure. Send me a text message. It would be like, Pam, I need exactly one and a quarter cups of water, please. Yeah. See, like, maybe that's too much for me. I like watering my plants, and I just like, I like to look at my plant and see what it's telling me. Hmm. Although the computer is probably smarter than I am in that respect. But But you're right. There's probably, like, a lot of problems that somebody deep in technology that could solve them has not come across yet or something. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why it's important to always keep in touch with people outside of the industry. Because then you're kind of aware of, like, I I have a teacher friend who was telling me how she's bought a bunch of materials off of Teachers Pay Teachers. And I recently learned about them because someone emailed me about trying about a job there. Um, But so I was like, oh, what's this thing? And it is it is such a simple idea. And it's so it's an e-commerce platform where teachers publish material. So basically info products. And then other teachers buy them. Like, how simple is that? You know, like, it's every, you know, every e-commerce site everywhere. It doesn't even have a dropship problem, I don't think. I think they're all info products. They might have some distribution. But otherwise, it's it's teachers uploading things and implementing a payment system, you know. And it's it's done awesome things for teachers, um, allowing people who create curriculum to get revenue and for teachers to feel good about getting, honestly, better materials than they were sometimes getting from curriculum providers. It's pretty cool. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Kind of thing that only happens from, you know, someone who's a teacher to be like, here's this problem. I think that we can probably easily solve it. And that is a very long-winded excuse of why I have done nothing with my two <laughs> Because I'm, I'm losing my creativity. I need to, I need to get a little bored. In order to have a bunch of wild ideas, can you run like I I came up empty on like trying to get the Erlang VM to run on an Arduino, but can you run like a JavaScript VM on an Arduino? That's a good project. <laughs> ah, awesome. sorry, I failed. Pam just got shocked. That we had a soundboard for a second. I thought that was like the awesome idea sound. <laughs> Is 
So all of you have now suffered through how I have the loudest and scariest uh, doorbell. Did that come through on the microphone? Oh, yeah. yeah it's it's really scary. <laughs> it's so startling every single time. It had a nice, like, ping to it, though. It sounded... Uh... Oh, it sounds like a doorbell. It's just, like, it's really... I don't think there's a computing thing that solves this. I think I just need a ladder because <laughs> I need to get up to the bell and muffle the bell because it's so loud. But I think if I just put a few layers of moleskin or something, then I could dampen the bell. Stuff it with cotton. Yeah, that's the thing. Just dampen it because it's so loud. You could put some motion sensors outside your door so you could like preempt your doorbell. So you're ready for it. <laughs> yeah. I could also put up a sign. <laughs> These things are also solved by less technical means. <laughs> please don't. You put up one of those. Uh, please don't ring the doorbell. There's a sleeping baby sign. Some people will actually respect it. Sometimes. Oh, says someone with sleeping babies. <laughs> <laughs> but then at least they feel really bad when you come to the door and you're like, shh. <laughs> so Justin, when I was in Philly, I. Uh... Showed you the light of Space Max. Are you uh, are you still on board? No, I I like Vim. It works. I can solve problems with it really fast, and I know where everything is. So yeah, I, I am still interested in it. As I begin to write more 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 Elixir, I will probably have to switch just to get the plugin working. Alchemist. Um, Brett and I have had not much free time trying to get things done for work, so been just using Vim. What do you not know how to do in Space Max? Uh, I don't know the keystrokes for things. I think that's the biggest one. So like, yeah, I can I can like navigate a file and edit it, but then I'm like, I want to run the test for this file, or I want to you know format this correctly, like indent it automatically. Just like little things that like I take for granted. I think that uh, I'll just need to figure out how to do an Emacs or or find a plugin for or something. I don't know. I'm also not sure if I should like make Emacs work with my key bindings that I'm used to, or if I should, because I'm, I'm kind of a fan of like using the default wherever possible, so I don't have like too customized of a setup. Uh, yeah, I don't know which way to go in Emacs, if I should like keep my Vim settings, or if I should embrace the, what was it, like leader PFTT or something to like find a file? Yeah, leader, leader PFTT. Control XF, control XF. Yeah, but that doesn't use the Helm stuff. That's like the, default mm -hmm. emacs way but uh, also, I, had to, like, I had to like remap my alt key to be control or something right control i don't know i'm, I'm hitting keystrokes i know it's like supposed to be more vim like than usual emacs but i'm hitting keystrokes that uh do not feel natural yeah to get used to using my alt key but now that i got used to it i i like it i can do key bindings for like alt and i have key bindings on command i feel like everything i do in vim is like one or two keystrokes and emacs it's like three or four consistently but it is nice because you can uh what is it helm and the fuzzy find are like command, command names yeah then you see the shortcut for it too yeah that is nice it, it really helps learning i don't know i'll give it another try i just haven't had time recently it's like the lowest of my priority list the lawnmower is pretty high yes it is well yeah i got deadlines i made a i made a wonder list list for uh for each stage and i have i have due dates Speaking of due dates, anybody doing a Global Day of Code Retreat this year in Philly? Yeah, Jervon. Pam and Jervon organized it two years ago. Well, Jervon did it last year. Yes. I did the two years before that. So that's November 15th this year, I believe. So like uh, eight weeks away. 
They're I mean, it's really close for, to the conch. Is it? What is it? The 15th? The, the conch is... So that is the weekend of the conch, I think. Which means it'll be closure bridge. Mm. And I'll be... Yeah, I won't be available. Because I will be speaking at the conch. I don't know. It sounds like a really great... If only there were a meetup that was almost like a software as craft meetup. <laughs> I feel only. like they would be a great candidate to organize that event. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do have helpers. Yeah, you have other people too. Not really. No. I mean, yeah, uh, there is one person, Sarah Gray, who's been organizing a lot of meetups. But I also don't want to be like, hey, could you do this? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I might host one. If anybody's listening to this from Philly and is interested in uh, organizing Global Day Code Retreat, you can do it. You really don't need any like prior experience or anything. Um, there's a website. I think it's codetreat.org. I think so. Uh, has like videos you can watch as a facilitator, like how to run it. You well, see? yeah, and they also do training, so they'll schedule like training for new new folks. Yeah, you just need to uh, find a space and maybe some food, and then uh, good to go. And we can help you find space. Yes. So, yeah, it's been my list of things to, like, look into, but I really don't want to, like, add something else that I have to do in the next few months. And, and? if you're not in Philly, you should still have one or host one at Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I guess there's more than just Philly listeners. Hopefully the Philly one won't be on the 7th again. On it's the... always on the same day as Bar Camp, and I always go to Bar Camp. Oh, you're coming to Philly again for Bar Camp, right? Yep. Cool. Are you going to stay for a week later for a couple days at Coder Street? <laughs> Probably not. Is it, oh, it's the next weekend. You could probably go to one in Seattle. Yeah. Are you going to go to one? I don't know if there's one yet. I was trying to look it up. I'm... Yeah, maybe. But yeah, I'll be in for like a, a few days before and after. Like I, I want to go in every few months anyway. So I kind of just try to piggyback on a conference or events in the area. Would you go to a code retreat? You lamented before that you've like done Game of Life so many times that you're not really interested in anymore. I do feel a little burned out on Game of Life. Like I feel... Yeah, I talked about this before, but what I really got out of the exercise was kind of the idea of solving a problem different ways and kind of working through that with a pair. But it's hard for me after having done it so many times. Like I have a pretty solid idea of the way I want to start it. So it's hard to get through like that design process and kind of see emergent design when I have opinions on what the design should be already. Maybe other people have opinions like me. So the point of a code retreat is to work on something it doesn't have to be like solving the problem so then it sounds like you should work on uh allowing someone else to solve the problem or show you how to solve the problem there you go. <laughs> yeah i do but it, I, don't, I don't i'm just not getting the same thing out of that so i have to admit that i am a little tired of the game of life these days well i don't think i'm tired of it it's because like software as craft is in the evening and then by the time by like seven o'clock i really don't want to do it yeah, I don't really want to do it anymore <laughs> at, at night. Uh, maybe we need to like, reschedule things so the kata happens earlier. But no, I, I still enjoy the game of life a lot. I always learn something, no matter what it is, Like every time I do it. And also a lot of that is I try to do it in like, other languages that I'm not familiar with. Like uh, Last time I think I did it in Groovy, which was uh, surprising that I was actually writing Groovy. Because <laughs> I didn't think anybody wrote Groovy, but apparently a lot of people do, especially for Jenkins plugins. You should write uh, Game of Life and Elixir, Len, at the code retreat. I guess I would consider it. Purely functional. I actually tried a few weeks ago, and I didn't finish. I got stuck. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to do this. 
Do you want to do picks? Sure. I'll go first. Um, I somehow had never discovered uh, Amy Schumer. Uh, so <laughs> if you like really crass comedy, um, she's amazing. Uh, I love it because it's always it's always really crass, but there's always it's like a political message there too. So it's it's really good. And there's like three seasons worth on Hulu that I'm catching up on. Of what show? Uh, Inside Amy Schumer. Oh, okay. She's coming out with an HBO special. Nirvana, do you have a pick? Yeah. My programming pick is um, a book called Closure Applied. I haven't read all of it, but I've read a couple chapters. And they really explain closure concepts well. It's meant for someone who has toyed with things but wants to take it to the next level. Um, yeah. And... I can't remember anything that I've listened this week for music, so I'm going to just pick uh, Ellie Goulding. I think she's cool. That's it. Pam, do you have a pick? So I'm going to pick something that I heard about, talked about at the Open Hardware Summit, which is the Ultrascope from the Open Space Agency, which... Yes, there's also an open space agency, which is cool to check out. So so tying in with citizen scientists. But anyway, uh, I, I think it's kind of interesting because it's so it's uh, patterns for building your own uh, robot telescope. Uh, so you can contribute to uh, science projects so that and in generally these things are pretty cool. So uh, you if you have you one of these telescopes, you could contribute data contribute more data points to a project. Uh, I, I also think it's funny because I also built a telescope uh, when I was younger, and it seems like it was a lot smaller than the Ultrascope. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's my pick, uh, Ultrascope from the Open Space Agency. My pick is Robot Programming, a Practical Guide to Behavior-Based Robotics, the Kindle book, which gives you uh, an introduction to behavior-based robotics, and I think all the code samples are in Python, uh, so they're fairly easy to understand and read, no matter what language you're writing in. Uh, and yeah, like I mentioned earlier, the subsumption architecture, it's kind of similar to that. So um, yeah, I've only been reading the sample so far from Kindle. Uh, I'm about to start reading past that today, but it's pretty good so far. So show notes are at turing.cool slash 65. Follow us on Twitter at turingcool, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. See ya. Bye.